Well, let me say again a general welcome to all of you and also to those of you who are watching this via video cast um, over at our Brentwood campus and to all those of you who are watching this on YouTube or through our podcast. And if you'd like to subscribe uh, to our podcast and get our outlines, just simply just go to our website, onthejourney.ca. We're beginning a new series called No Ordinary Marriage. And we want to challenge you over these next four weekends uh, to consider God's wisdom about marriage, which the Bible, um, I would contend, it says it's one of the most important relationships that we have here on earth. Absolutely one of the most important relationships. Now, I just want to let you know that we have a great book again. We try to, in all of our series right now, have a sort of a book. So this is the value-added moment for you if you'd like to follow along and dig deeper. Um, And this book is uh, by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. And feel free to uh, check that out on Amazon. You can get a Kindle edition of it if you into Kindle readers. Um, or feel free to order and get a paperback as well. But it's a great book and highly recommended as a read on marriage. Well, as we begin this series, today we want to talk about the modern, the modern myths of marriage. And um, we really want to talk about these modern myths because we feel that it's important we address this issue both from a perspective of those who are married and those who aren't married. Because we know that as we live in a culture that often we have a lot of what we call, I believe, distorted ideas around marriage, fueled by romanticism, uh, fueled by an extreme idealism, uh, fueled by certain cultural perspectives uh, within our own society right now that twist and misinform our understanding of marriage. And what I want us to do is, as we look at the myths about marriage, I want us then to look at what the Bible says and it gives us a framework of understanding the truth about marriage. So let's just begin. What are some of those myths about marriage? What are some of those myths about marriage? Well, let's look at this first one. One myth is this. The odds are against you if you get married. The odds are against you if you get married. I mean, we hear that statistic bandied about right in our society. 45 to 50% of all marriages in our society will end in divorce. And, and for a lot of people, um, um, something that really hardly took place at all, uh, back when I was born in 1960, it was almost virtually non-existent. But today, 60 to 70% of all young people moving into marriage are now doing it. And it's called cohabitation with a sexual partner. Because a lot of people go, well, look, um, we're going to, you know, have a, at best a 50% chance here of getting it right. So why don't we, instead of getting married right away, and I don't certainly want to just be having one night stands and, you know, separate sexual encounters. Well, how about we live in that middle ground of cohabitation with a sexual partner. And we'll sort of, you know, test run it, you know, kind of like you take a car out for a test drive, you take that woman or man out for a test drive. Um, You know, it's interesting that the rationale for that in our society is because living together before marriage improves your chances uh, about your marriage choice. It helps you discover if you're compatible before you take the plunge. Um, Now, I understand if you've come from a very painful family dynamic, it may be an understandable way of addressing 
this fear of marriage because, again, of this 50% issue. But actually, studies show that cohabitation is actually associated with future marital weakness. I want to say that again. Cohabitation is associated with future marital weakness. In other words, living together, studies show that it weakens your chances for a strong future marriage. Now, there's some speculation about why this is the case. Some say, actually, that when you're actually living together, because you haven't really made the final commitment, everybody's still walking on eggshells, so you're really not being your true self. And then finally, when you get married, you go, ha-ha, this is who I really am. <laughs> Bait and switch, fooled ya. Um, others is that because there's a fear based in that living together, because there is not that solid commitment, that there's no challenge going on. And so if things have been sort of causing resentment, you again, you park it, you park it, you stuff it, you stuff it until you get married. And then you go, okay, now we're married. I'm going to tell you really, I really don't like your black socks on in bed. Okay. I just don't like that. Now, here's the other thing, though. Going, coming back, though, to these odds are against you. Remember we said 50% of all marriages end in divorce. It's interesting, though, that, um, and this comes out of Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, when you look at some of these studies and you dig into those statistics, what you discover is, is that a great percentage of the divorces belong to people who are, now catch these categories, who marry before they're 18, who never graduate from high school or who have a baby before they get married. Those are all factors that lead to divorce. So in other words, and then throw in the cohabitation factor as well. So some, so one study has stated this blunt, bluntly. So if you are a reasonably well-educated person with a decent income, Come, coming from an intact family and are religious and you marry after 25 without having a baby first, your chances of divorce are actually very low. So, so this myth that says the odds are against you, you need to say, wait a minute, let's really look at all the factors that are at play here. So that's modern myth number one. Modern myth number two, um, you will become unhappy. You will become unhappy. Um, the comedian Chris Rock once asked this question, do you want to become single and lonely or married and bored? There's your choices. Um, this is the feeling that when you talk to some people, and especially again, I'm talking to young adults uh, primarily on this, but I think it's again a cultural perception right now, especially in our urban areas is that seven out of 10 married couples are miserable. There are negative perceptions everywhere telling us that long-term married couples are really boring people. Um, they, and some of you, I don't know if it's on Netflix, but you can check out this documentary. Very, it's a very anti-marriage documentary by Dan Shapiro called Monogamy. And uh, he interviews 50 couples whose marriages had dissolved. He was asked in his research, did you interview any long-term married couple who was happy? He said, no, I didn't. Because he says, we all know those are boring people. That was his research. Kind of focused, wasn't it now? Kind of biased. Kind of grim. Kind of gloomy. 
And unfortunately, Dan Shapiro represents a, a, a big section of our society now that have lost sight of the goodness of marriage. Actually, there are surveys out there that tell us this, that the number of people who say they're very happy in their marriages is still quite high, anywhere between 60 to 62%. So, you know, are people unhappy? Well, statistics tell us that's not really the case. Most striking, actually, are the longitudinal studies studies that have been, you know, watching couples over a long period of time and, gra and grading their happiness in five-year increments. Here's a very interesting uh, discovery in these surveys. It, show, it showed that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will actually become happy if they give it five years. Now, did you catch that statistic? That if you're unhappy now in your marriage... Wait five years. No, seriously. Wait five years. And, 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 and two-thirds say that you'll actually become happier and not get divorced. Uh, research evidence also shows that people who are married consistently show higher degrees of satisfaction with their lives than those who are divorced or living together with a partner. Also, happiness from marriage spills over to our children. Children, statistics show this, who grow up in a married two-parent families have two to three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not. Let me quote Keller. The overwhelming verdict is that being married and growing up with parents who are married are enormous boosts to our happiness and well-being. So there's modern myth number two. You will become unhappy. And actually, again... That's not really true. Sla um, here's the next one. It doesn't fit the male nature. Marriage does not fit the male nature. Okay, guys, here we go. Buckle up. <laughs> Ladies, please keep your elbows to your sides, pinned in. Okay. Now, what do these names have in common? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Senator John Edwards. Elliot Spitzer, Newt Gingrich, you haven't figured it out yet, Bill Clinton, and our famous one of all, Anthony Weiner. In every incident, these powerful, prominent political men resisted the traditional purposes of marriage. They, instead of allowing marriage to change their natural instincts, to reign in their passions, to learn the denial of one's own desires, they had none of it. They had affairs. They committed adultery. They lusted after other women. And in the process, they destroyed all of their marriages. You know, culture out there tells us that marriage doesn't fit a lot of men. I mean, men who have drive and ambition and confidence, well, of course, that will lead them. They just have needs that leads them to want to conquest and have female adulation and take risky liaisons. Now, isn't it interesting that today we have turned the definition of man into meaning a guy's got to have his needs met. And isn't it interesting that when you go back and look at a definition of real manhood, traditionally, 
Real manhood was not about self-indulgence. It was about self-mastery. For most of Western history, one person has written, the primary and most valued characteristic of manhood was self-mastery. A man who indulged in excessive eating, drinking, sleeping, or sex, who failed to rule himself, was considered unfit for home and for country. So what is a real man? A real man is a man who can show self-control. Marriage, not cohabitation, is where boys get to learn what real manhood is. You want to become a man? Get married. Here's the fourth modern myth. Fourth modern myth. That perfect soulmate out there exists. The need for someone to be perfect just for me, and I actually just want to unpack this for a second, is actually an outworking of a fundamental shift in how we view marriage. Marriage used to be defined as an, as in, an institution for the common good, but now it is a private arrangement for the satisfaction of individuals. Marriage has become, for a lot of young people, about self-actualization and self-realization. Marriage is about finding that right person who completes me, who makes me feel good about me, who makes me enjoy life so me can have a great time. It's called the me marriage now. You can, sorry for being so sarcastic, I can't help it. <laughs> um... You see, the quest for these me marriages now is about this question. How can I find a partner who will make my life, my life more interesting? Um, how can I find a partner who is sexy and attractive, but most importantly, not stress me out because then I'll have to change? You see, that's the perfect soulmate that people are looking for now. Newsflash. That person does not exist. You have created an ideal, and this is called extreme idealism. It means that you're looking for someone with no character flaws, no emotional needs, and is very low maintenance. Now, you go look in the mirror in the bathroom, and you ask yourself, do I have character flaws? Do I have emotional needs? Do I have to be maintained at times? Do I always manage myself well? If the answer to any of those is yes, then why would you expect to find someone who is not like you, which is imperfect, not perfect? I mean, isn't it funny? Read the personal want ads. The kind of partners want it, you know, 45-year-old man looking for a sexy 29-year-old woman, fit, you know, da-da-da-da-da, boom-boom-boom-boom, you know, low maintenance, it's not naggy, you know, always willing to do what I want to do. I mean, these people don't exist. And listen to this, the need for self-fulfillment through a perfect partner is fueled also by our media filled with sexy images of people. So for a lot of guys, when they say they're looking for their perfect soulmate, what they really mean is they're looking for their perfect soulmate babe. You know, you, you, 
You get that? I'm looking for my perfect soulmate, babe. Okay, anyway. You're always going to find flaws when you're looking for the perfect one. You know, I think Jerry Seinfeld, back in the hit show, his Seinfeld show, was very, very... Um, he was really making a social commentary on dating back in his show, which still has, I think, just gotten worse. Because you remember, for those of you who watched the Seinfeld show, Jerry would always be dating these different women, but they would always end up having a problem, right? No one was perfect. So remember this clip, the girl with the man hands? Let's just watch that. Would you like some bread, Jerry? No, no thanks. Um... Just not hungry. You have a little something on your face. I can get it. No, 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 you're missing it. It's higher. It's an eyelash. Make a wish. I don't want to. Make a wish. Okay. Didn't come true. Don't you just love lobster? Um, you see, the problem with all these modern myths that we're wrestling with right now is um, it leads to something. It, it leads to what we call a pessimistic idealism. Because I'm convinced that if you think wrongly about what marriage is and where you're saying the odds are against me and I'll never be happy and I've got to find the perfect soulmate and on and on, it will actually lead you to a place where you have this unbelievable ideal of a person you want, and yet you're now completely pessimistic that you'll ever meet that ideal. And, and actually today, young people, as they're moving into marriages, have this pessimistic idealism surrounding them all the time. And I just want to say that when we make it our ideal... That our partner, now I need you to listen carefully to this, that our partner will meet the highest values that our, that our culture is now telling us is important. And the three highest values that our culture is saying is important are these. Now listen to them. Our culture today is saying that freedom, autonomy, and self-fulfillment are the highest values. I got to be me. I got to be free. And you got to make me happy. Now you think about that. And let's just get honest. How in the world will those values be met when you enter into a deep, binding, personal commitment between a man and a woman, and you know in your heart of hearts you're going to have to sacrifice those values in order to actually carry out love for one another? Because if you go into a marriage saying, I got to be me, I got to be free, and you got to make me happy, I don't even think you're going to make it a year. So what can we say about discovering the truth about marriage? And this is where we got to look at a biblical perspective. In this series, we're going to have two anchor passages in the Bible that are going to, in a sense, be our guardrails to understanding marriage. And whenever you're talking to someone about marriage, whether you're talking to your, your spouse, whether you're talking to a future mate, whether you're talking to your daughters or sons, or whether you're talking to your grandchildren about marriage, or whether you're engaged in a conversation about marriage, these are the two biblical passages that give us the guardrails to our understanding. The first one is Genesis chapter 2, and the second one is Ephesians chapter 5. So Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5. Let's just first of all understand what Genesis 2 does for us. There we see that God designed marriage. 
Marriage did not come out of some, as, as it says in Tim Keller's book, out of the Bronze Age in order to maintain economic stability. God designed marriage. And if God is the creator of marriage, then we need to listen to his purposes around it, his goal for it, and his reason for it. And let that shape our understanding. God designed marriage. Listen to what we read here in Genesis chapter 2. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. And then, you, and then after he, the man meets the woman, then we read, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. God designed marriage. And therefore, we need to listen to his purposes and his plans around marriage. But the second guardrail to marriage is that the gospel defines marriage. God designed marriage in Genesis 2. But in Ephesians 5, we're reminded that the gospel defines marriage. Let's read this passage in Ephesians 5, verses 25 and then 31 and 32. Listen, for husbands, this means love your wives. Now catch this. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her. Now, notice this connection Paul makes. He goes right back to Genesis chapter 2. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. We just read that from Genesis 2, right? So he's going right back to the beginning of creation here. And the two are united into one. This is a great mystery. Now, catch this. Catch this. But this is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. You know what Paul is telling us here? He is saying that the marriage and the gospel explain one another. And in fact, when we look at Genesis chapter 2, what Paul is saying is when you read about God instituting marriage right there between a man and a woman and this great mystery, actually God was foreshadowing the marriage between Christ and his church. Marriage itself was a revelation of the gospel that would be revealed later on. The seeds of the gospel were right there in marriage. So marriage and the gospel explain one another. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare to believe. And at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Now, did you catch that? We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. And yet we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. Now, imagine... If you approached your marriage partner with that truth. They are more sinful and flawed than they're willing to admit. And yet they are more loved than they ever dare to believe. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying the way Jesus loves the church or the way Jesus loves us is the way a husband and wife are called to love one another. Not in a romantic pretend, oh, you're perfect, everything's great. No, it's being honest and saying, you're broken and you're flawed. And yet I'm going to love you just the way Jesus loves us who are broken and flawed. And so there's truth and there's love and grace and commitment. See, this is the transforming love that we must bring into our marriages. 
You see, when you allow your marriage to be defined by the gospel, you will not keep any more scorecards. Well, you did that, I'm doing this. Jesus didn't do that. He died on the cross for everything you did. There's no more self-centeredness. It's about me. I want to make it about me. No, Jesus didn't make it about himself. He made it about us and he gave his life up. You, you, there will be no more, there will be no more um, um, shock at the flaws of our spouse. I can't believe you did that. No, Jesus died for all the flaws of your spouse. So let's not be shocked by their flaws. Uh, oh, and here's, here's another one. And stop pretending that you don't have flaws either. The gospel reveals who we really are, and yet the gospel is the very anchor of what we're called to be to one another in marriage. Just as, again, Paul wrote, this is a great mystery, this, this marriage between a man and a woman loving one another, but it's an illustration of the way Jesus loves the church. Let's just go to that quote by Timothy Keller. He says, through the gospel, we get both the power and the pattern for the journey of marriage. Let me just put it bluntly like this. How are you supposed to treat your spouse this coming week? Do this. Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus. Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus. He shows grace. He speaks truth. Guess what? Everything else will follow after that. See, that's, that power and pattern of the gospel is what will be the guide point for us as we go through this journey on marriage. And here's the wonderful hope. As we allow the gospel to transform us and we allow God to remind us that he designed marriage, we are on a wonderful journey of discovering all the joy Now listen, all the joy, all the pain, all the wonderfulness, and all the challenges of what a true marriage is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, help us to allow the truth of your word that you, God, designed the marriage. We need to follow your plan and your purposes. And Lord, it is the very gospel of Christ that gives us the power and patterns for the journey of marriage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Going to hand it now off to Carolyn at the Brentwood campus.